I can't think of too many more things that are more special in, in life than to, to uh, stand alongside a son. And uh, a couple of years ago, Denise, who was with us here at Masters, some of you may remember, a real joy. And Tim, you know, I appreciated so much, Steve, your music this morning. I don't think I could have chosen any, any better selection of music than, than what you did. And the reason that I say that is because out of two of those songs, uh, I, I guess I would even go back further. How many of you here at Masters this morning, 10 years ago, would have never, ever thought you'd be in a place like this for one reason or another? How many? How many would have never thought you'd be here? I think that's true probably for most of us. Why is that so? Why is it that all of a sudden we may be going down one track and be so certain that this is God's will in our life and then find something different? Something comes into our life. This morning, because of the relationship that I've had over the years in broadcast work, in covering many heavy events of crisis and tragedy, and as a chaplain now for FBI and police agencies, see the same thing from a different perspective, what happens in life that makes these things change. Steve, the songs that you chose this morning were so appropriate because, first of all, you, you closed with Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. John Newton, on his grave marker in England, on that stone, it says, Once an infidel in liberty, who spent his entire life destroying or making attempts to destroy the very gospel, that ended up, he ended up writing and penning that song. Mr. Spafford, who wrote the lyrics to It Is Well With My Soul, knew the tragedy of a loss of his family at sea. And after crossing over that very spot where that ship went down that took his family, could say in the midst of crisis and tragedy, It Is Well With My Soul. Why these things happen, I'm not sure. This morning, some of you, Tim, I know, and you and I have talked about this, and coming down on the plane last night from Seattle, I, I kept thinking of you guys, and, and, and this time together, that we've never had before. And I kept thinking, some of you folks here have been on a plan from the year you were five, and you knew exactly where you're going. But yet others of you were more like me than <laughs> some others, that here you might even be coming up to graduation in May and you're still not quite certain. And you're so annoyed with your folks who are saying, I'm spending all this money, what are you going to do with your life? And you're saying, I don't know. <laughs> Why uh, those things happen? They tell me, Tim, and you, in fact you've told me, I asked you about some of the chapel speakers this, this, this quarter and this time, and you told me some of the folks that were there. You folks have had probably the best. You have had preachers that know how to do it, preachers who know homiletically how to put everything together, and they tell me that every preacher has three good points. That makes a good sermon, right? Something like that. This morning, if you can find three points, would you let me know when we're finished? Because I'm not sure where they are. However, I have a feeling somewhere along the line there might be some principles and some things that as we weave together today and then flesh it all out and draw it together if they still invite me back on Monday, we'll kind of do the same thing. But Steve, thanks for that music and that song. Tim, come here a second, bud. <laughs> you know, some, how many of you are preachers' kids? I mean, you know, dads or moms are in the, you know, to speak. Do you ever get, did you get nervous as a, as a little, little person that someday in church, they were going to say something about you and embarrass the daylights out of you. Has that ever happened to any of you like that? How many? Yeah. <laughs> you, say, you just want to crawl into the chair because Dad's doing this to you. I got a feeling Tim has no idea. We haven't talked about anything this morning. He, he even says this morning, Dad, what are you going to be talking about? I said, I'm not sure, but he, I have a feeling that underneath here, he's a little nervous that somewhere along the line, some of these things might happen. Tim... You're like all these guys here. How many of you guys at age five or six or seven wanted to be a firefighter, fireman when you were young? How many of you want to be a policeman? 
How many of you wanted, wanted to be something when you were younger at five? <laughs> and now you're not sure what that is. Now, Coach Oates is over in the corner. I just said, I can pick on him, I guess. Uh, Coach, yeah, when you were five or six, what did you want to be? Pardon? Firefighter. And what happened? I don't know what happened. You see, Tim, as long as I can remember, the guy was five years old. He, when the basketball was bigger than he was, he was trying to do it. And all of a sudden, Tim, I, know, I wouldn't embarrass you for anything. You don't have to worry about anything like this this morning. Absolutely nothing, okay? But do you remember when your parents wanted you to do something when you were a kid, and they just insisted that you were either going to play the piano or you are going to do something like this? Tim, on his own, from the time he was little, wanted to play basketball. And when he started to play, Tim, I always remember those days. They were just, they were just kind of special. I just can't tell you how special they were. But, you see, Tim was always the little guy. And at that time, he... He even needed to make sure that things were right, so he'd, he didn't want to, he wanted to impress the coach back then, and he even make sure he had to put the notes on his hands so he wouldn't remember the plays. But one thing about Tim is that he was always the little guy on the team, no matter where it went, whatever. So like maybe uh, Coach Oates back there, who wanted to be a firefighter and then somehow got into basketball, realized... Tim, early on you realized your dad wasn't exactly the biggest guy in the world, and probably you'd never be 10 feet, right? Probably, yes. Probably. So somewhere along the line, you had to kind of change vocations or think about, what can I do? But sports was always a part. Olympics, could you dive? Could you be a part of diving? <laughs> The Olympics in Atlanta is coming up, Tim, but I don't think you quite made it there. I'm making a point here about, and I'm hoping today, there's going to be some encouragement to each of you who yet have come to life or come to this place at Master's College and you're still not quite sure where your niche is and what you want to do or what you believe God wants you to do. Tim had another vocation he thought about. If, if, he, if he didn't want, if he couldn't get into the NBA, if diving and athletics was not it, maybe I could be a Dave Niehaus, which does our play-by-play, -play, and I could do television or radio like Daddy. If I could, I could even sell a product. I could, I could make a commercial, and I would be good at that and do it somewhere. Try new hairspray for men. It's really great. It helps your hair stay in place. Watch. Just around and then spray. One guy tried it and it worked so good it stayed for two years. Now can you believe that? I told you, Tim, there might not be a come a Monday after this. One more little thing here. <laughs> if you couldn't make it in that, I know like these, you've got good musicians here. And like these musicians, maybe music was your thing. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure.
Today, here this morning, I got a feeling that some of your parents could have done the same dirty thing on you. Somewhere in this group this morning are those of you who are still yet trying to remember those things that you did yesterday, trying to put them together for today, and trying to somehow sort out what it is that God would have you do and be a part of your life. Some of you, I know, are on a track that is so clean and slick that after graduation you're just moving right on in. Some of you still are still not sure. I don't have a message today and Monday for you at all other than maybe within these few minutes we have together to weave together a testimony of a person who at one point like Tim's dad, was on one track, and then at some point in midlife changed totally to something that he never, ever thought that he could ever do. Where does it all start? Steve used the song, It's Well With My Soul. That author of that song could never have ever written and penned in the midst of all that tragedy something like, It Is Well With My Soul, unless he had prepared himself in advance. Sometime if you come and visit us in Seattle, you know that there are things it does up there. By the way, you realize that it is beautiful there all the time. You realize that. Never rains. That's really a PR thing just to kind of keep some of the folks from down here discovering how nice it really is and all moving up there. That's kind of the way it is. Not true. If you were to come and visit us, and Tim uh, I'm sure it would somehow get you to one little place, and that place would be a little aircraft company north of about 15 minutes of where we live in Seattle. And if you went out to this place called Boeing, you would drive along and you would see these magnificent machines under construction. Your basketball team traveled recently, I think, on a 747. And some of these folks, this brand new plane just coming off the, off the tarmac after being constructed, I just find it still, every time I visit up there, how amazing it is to discover that machine and how it works. Let me ask you something. If someone gave you a gift and said to you right now, I want to give you this 747 as yours. What would you do with it? <laughs> if you're like me, you'd just be awestruck. I still don't know how to fly. Some of you folks fly here, and you're pilots, and you, 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 got your, you, you got to all your credentials. I don't even know that yet. But if I were given a gift like this, if I were to treasure it carefully, the one thing I'd make, have to make sure that I did was to read the manual, to read what Mr. Boeing had to say about how to maintain it, how to take care of it, what kind of fuel to put in it. Basically, do it the way the Boeings wanted you to do it. I couldn't go to Lockheed. I couldn't go to McDonnell Douglas. The rules might be similar, but not the same. But yet, how many of us go through life, and folks you know, friends back in high school, friends you left in the hometown, wherever, go through life getting all of their rules and directions from Jenny Jones and Geraldo and all of these folks on television, the sitcoms that are there, all of the influences of people who absolutely know nothing about this marvelous creation that God has given us that functions well if the fuel is right, if we care for it, if we care for the body and the mind and the spirit. And in this book, much like would be in that book concerning the manufacturer's instructions, would be the guidelines 
for living. Today, throughout our time together, you're going to see some graphics that I've, we've placed up there. And they're weaving together some of the principles from this manual about successful living. Before we get together again on Monday, I want you to do something. Would you do something for me sometime between now and Monday? I'd like you to sit down and write out everything you do in a typical day of yours. Take any day. Take today, take Thursday, take Friday, and list, highlight the major things that you do that if we projected it, it would illustrate a day in your life that would be significant. Would you do that? Then on Monday, the three points that you'll see will not be three points that I'll give you, but three principles or purposes and things that you'll give back to me. Tim mentioned the word in the organization International Chaplains Ministry. What that simply is, is an organization, a mission organization, that has been raised up to train pastors, Christian laymen and women, to work alongside emergency service organizations, fire, police, rescue, the coroner, the medical examiner, FBI, secret service, folks that are in emergency service. And the purpose of that is to not only care for their lives, but in particular, care for families to whom sudden events of crisis come. I'm a little bit nervous. Tim and I were talking last night, and he came over to the hotel, and, and he said, are you, how are you feeling or something about today? And I said, I'm a little bit nervous from one standpoint, is that we're going to be taking some of the heaviest events that happen that I saw from a news perspective and participated in, and now involved as a chaplain going to families that sudden events come to of crisis. And I recognize that in a group like this this morning, there are those of you who this year have had something heavy come into your life. And maybe even someone came to you and had to tell you, like someone has done to me on occasion, of the death of someone very close to me or a family member. And sometimes you don't even understand it. And you don't even think that the person coming to tell you or bring you the message really sympathizes with you. All often you hear somebody say, I understand. But you know that in your heart of hearts they don't really know. But over the years we have tried to take events and bring a godly person into that person's life to help them, to walk them through that. This morning, this first session, we're just going to kind of lay some groundwork. Then on Monday, hopefully, be able to flesh some of that out. But no sermon, no three points, just some moments with Tim and Denise's dad this morning. Can you think back to your hometown for just a moment and remember the first time that you remember any kind of an event of crisis or tragedy or something heavy that came into you or your family's life or your neighborhood. This is what I remember the first time as a little guy growing up in Chicago in a Jewish neighborhood. These men and I remember the days of the Hitler regime, Nazi Germany, and I'll remember those newsreels like as if they were yesterday because they changed the heart of our neighborhood, of our family, but I didn't understand it. Dead people, piled in rows, just like cardwood. We all know the people of Jerusalem, we all know the people of Jerusalem, I have no idea to this day the brokenness of families that learned that their loved ones were taken, their lives taken, the prime of their life, with the thousands and thousands of others in the gas chambers of Eastern Europe. I don't know what that's like. The first personal time that I ever remember anything was when I was about six or seven years of age. My family home was a quiet home, but one night my parents and grandparents just lost it.
they just became unglued, as we would say. And I looked out of the house, the flat of our house in Chicago, and I saw a fire truck coming in, and I saw all of a sudden big hunkin' guys carrying equipment, and they ran up the steps almost, went into my grandfather's bedroom, and all I remember is a little guy is hiding under a dining room table and crying. An hour later, I learned that my grandfather had had a heart attack and died that night. And these who were frightening people to me, these firefighters, they were there for good, were there to try to help my grandfather live. My first exposure as a young boy to death. Now, you see, I'm laying some groundwork here because I would have had no more of an idea ever that I would ever be talking to you in a place like this or being a part of a gathering like this. Never. And I'm weaving back because I think there might be some things in your life that you're experiencing now that you don't think have any bearing whatsoever on where God may call you in the future or how he may use your life down the line. Other experiences happened during those days, but I was young. I married young, beautiful nurse. We married in Chicago, and I entered a career in broadcast work. And came to Los Angeles in the 1960s. And one of my earliest assignments in Los Angeles was traveling with a political candidate who aspired to be the President of the United States. Robert Kennedy, in 1968, wanted it all. And he had all kinds of people around him that day that would help him get it all. I remember how cutthroat politics were. My first exposure, then the Ambassador Hotel that night. The Ambassador Hotel is now gone, but these memories linger on. I'll never forget that night, as long as I live, and you've seen this scene in a few occasions over your lives, I think. I'll never forget it, as we stood there in that hotel. Kennedy had around him all the henchmen that he could have around. He had all of the cronies around him that could manipulate and control and manage and care for his life and never expecting anything to suddenly come into his life that would cause him to say help. I was just a young kid. I looked more like Tim. I was obviously thinner there, but uh, just over Ethel's head there, a little younger without uh, the age. But standing there, I never thought at that particular time that we would leave and go to the kitchen and he would make a wrong move, and then all of a sudden, from a place of height and glory and success, would come that experience in that kitchen when Sirhan fired that shot. I'll never forget it. Listen to that noise. The chaos, the activity that was there, was so typical. And typical to people like you, and like me, who wake up in the morning, any given morning, thinking that we've got forever, that we've got the whole life ahead of us. But most of us know that's really not true. After these years in broadcast here in Los Angeles and traveling, I chose to invest a part of it with Christian television and radio. And at that point began to feel very comfortable with some of the things we were doing. You know, and I use this illustration only because someday in just a moment you'll discover you may get in this place yourself. Family life expert and author, Dr. James Dobson. Of what wives wish their husbands knew about women, Dr. James Dobson. The reason I use this is because folks, men and women, faculty, parents, someday you may get into a place in your life that you're convinced God led you. 
but it's a place of comfort and ease that's so natural that you won't ever allow God to take you further and use you further because you're comfortable. Guarding against that could be a problem right now because you're on a track. And that track may be so clean and slick, the Holy Spirit, kind of like a service on Sunday morning in some churches, it just tracks. The Holy Spirit, if you knocked on the door and said, I'd like to come in, I'd like to say something, you'd never get in. Might never get into a life. After this particular event and some of these programs that were done down here, we moved to Seattle. And shortly after coming to Seattle, I was asked by a fire department if I would consider being a chaplain for a fire department. I had no idea what a chaplain was. I was in the Navy. I was convinced that all the chaplains in the military were real rejects. So anybody with a title of a chaplain had to, didn't make it someplace, and they gave them to us in the Navy. But yet, chaplain, fire service, couldn't think of it. Did invocations at rotary clubs, talked people out of jumping out of high bridges, maybe did some strange things over dead bodies at crime scenes or plane crashes. But besides from that, what does he do? But at that particular time, around this comfort issue, I was struggling with something because I was involved with Christian ministry and church and all these nice things and all the people that I knew were Christians. But yet there was something in my heart that was saying, I've got a gift and I'm not using it and it's not there. And maybe you're there too this morning. You're saying, I'm around Christian people, but... Uh, God hasn't called me to that. He's called me, as Paul said, to go into the marketplace, to go into Jerusalem, to to use my gift. Now, you may not know what your gift is, because I certainly never thought doing today what I'm doing would ever be a gift. Tim, you stood up here, and I appreciated so much you getting up here. I couldn't have done that when I was your age, because I was asked at age 22 to stand and teach a Sunday school class, and all I had to do was read a quarterly. And that quarterly, I just had to read it. But I got so nervous that I stood there and I remember the pinpricks, the little things that kind of come up and down your body, and I begin to feel weak. And the next thing that I honestly remember in this little Sunday school class of 12 guys was flat out on the floor. And I remember some guy trying to give me air and wave at you, and I looked up. I was embarrassed. But I couldn't do it. And as I look back on that occasion today, the difference is this. Is I, I, best I can sort it out. God was teaching me something that he said, Ken, at that time, I wanted so much to impress that class that I could do it, that I was more concerned about how I looked, how I sounded, how I articulated, how I preached, that everything was there, that I lost the message. And the focus was more on the messenger, or at least I thought, than communicating the message of what God had for that time. Today, I'm around people. I couldn't visit my mother in a hospital when I was 20 because I couldn't stand that smell of antiseptic that they used to have in hospitals. And today, this week, this very week, I'm in homes where... Young people have ended their life by taking handguns and shotguns, and you walk in and you find the heaviest of things all around you in the house, or trail accidents where all of these heavy things happen uh, to the dismemberment. How is it that that happens? One time, I was caring for a family that had, the young girl had just been killed by a car. And I had spent time with that family, and I thought, like some pastors do after a good message on Sunday morning, that I had waxed eloquent. I'd said all the right things. A couple days after her funeral, I got together with the family again, and the mother said something very interesting to me. It changed me. But she said, Ken, I don't, I appreciate so much you being with us all during those days around the death of our little girl. But she says, you know, I don't remember anything you said. I only remember one thing, and that's that you were there. Young folks and old folks and all of us need to know somewhere along the line 
It's foolish to try to satisfy spiritual needs with physical substances. Can't do it. But you can't do the opposite either. When someone's in hungry, they don't necessarily need a lecture on grace. They need their dinner. And in those days, all of a sudden, we were finding people hungry because sudden events of crisis were coming to them. And the dinner needed to be fleshed out, as Paul said in Corinthians, I have done all things to all folks, I want to be all things to all folks, in order to win some. To the Jew I became the Jew, to the Greek I, to the hurting, to the one that was going through the heavy thing, whatever that event is, wherever you are, to be with them is the way God intends to meet their need. I'm asked to be a chaplain. All of a sudden, a week later, I'm standing and thinking the chaplaincy is religious. Thinking, what do you say to someone? I'm going to take you there. And if we had a seminar class or we had a session, special session, this is where we start talking about if you're a chaplain, if you're a pastor, if you're a friend, and you go to someone's house in the middle of the night and you're called because a fire erupts in that house, you tell me, what's the need? Need their dinner? Lecture on grace? You say, God bless you? What happens in those occasions that makes it so different? And what happens when you go and you find that you're there? In a fire, the difference between life and death may be a matter of moments. For those who have lived through one, it's a nightmare never forgotten. But for firefighters, seems like this a routine. It's, that's what they pay us for. We're here, we're waiting here for them to call. And when they call, we're going to try to be there as fast as we can. And that's why we rush, because we know that right that very instance when you made that phone call, it's the most critical moment in your life, probably. Your house is burning down, your child is not breathing, uh, your husband is having a heart attack. Uh, Whatever that situation may be, it's the most critical moment in your life right there. All of a sudden, when you stand on the edge of an event like this, and you go there and you realize, what can you say? How do you care for this family? Mr. Spafford, who wrote It Is Well With My Soul, was in the book and studied, prepared himself, took the manual seriously, so that at times like this, it wasn't just a haphazard way of caring for a family. But he took it seriously. And all of a sudden, with the assignment, a new assignment, I was finding myself out of comfortable church, out of the place. You know, I think it was Charles Colson, and I appreciated him in the early days of his ministry because he came from a background that was very unlike most evangelicals today. But he became a serious student of the Word. And the thing that he observed today about churches, most of ours, is that so many times if we're not careful, we can place the emphasis on bigness and greatness, and we can kind of give the impression that if it is not big or great, it isn't successful. And that our objective is to bring people into the church. This little reminder, I don't think if we study scripture we find that Jesus brought a whole lot of folks into the church. I'm not sure that that was his objective, but rather to take the principles to flesh out the teaching that God's given us on the campus through the chapel, to flesh that out and to take the church to them in some way, in some tangible way. When all of a sudden a news event you see on television that you see routinely, but you'll never think of again quite the same, because now you're thinking, who is it that tells that person of that death? Who is it when this happens that comes alongside that family and cares for them? Tonight, following a house fire that claimed the lives of nine young children, city fire officials are calling it the worst in 30 years. As Como's Roger Gatley reports, investigators say it was started by a five-year-old boy. From the outside, the house doesn't look particularly charred. The best evidence that nine children died inside is the temporary canvas and plastic morgue the coroner had to set up on the lawn. The nine children, some of whom were being babysat, were from four different families. 
visible, awful grief set its stamp on the tragedy as parents came searching for their children. Watch this! Fire investigators say a five-year-old boy admitted starting the fire while playing in a stairwell with a cigarette lighter. This frightened seven-year-old told fire officials he tried to warn the grown-ups in the house, but was too late. Flames had already trapped nine children aged one through eight upstairs. One of the worst parts of the day, perhaps, was the parents' duty of formally identifying their children at the county coroner's office. If this were a session that we would be studying together, it wouldn't be entertainment for certain. It wouldn't be just show and tell. It would be to take events like this and seriously figure out how God could allow us to care for that family. Now, some of you have been through some heavy things like this, maybe this year. Some of you may not have ever experienced anything yet, but yet it will come. Someone may be sitting this morning alongside someone that you're just oblivious to, that hasn't said anything but yet it's going through some brokenness that they can't even explain. Or maybe by the end of this day, something can come into that life. I've been in meetings like this where I've seen someone open a door and come into a place and hand a little piece of paper to someone, and that person goes out and makes a phone call. And on the other end of that phone call is someone telling you that your daddy has died, or as we do often at home, and I did this week just before coming down, a state patrol officer calling me and saying, Ken, I need your help. I need to go to the home and tell this family that this 18-year-old boy isn't coming home because two cars collided. You see, all of a sudden, it takes, it puts perspective and balance on life when we realize that suddenly it can be gone. Very quickly, in the remaining time, I want to set some things up for Monday. But I want you to put yourself as a minister. You see, someday you're going to say, or someday the thing that probably I hear more often on college campuses is you hear the expression, when I get into the ministry, I'm going to do this. When I get out there, I'm going to do this. Folks, forget that fact and that notion because you're in it now. You're in it today. You're in it in your room. You're in it every place that you've been. You're in it now. So prepare yourself. So as you see these scenes, events that I've been a part of, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what would be done better. How would you care for it if you were the person at the scene? In this scene here, a young boy has been struck by a car here in San Bernardino. And the medic aid crews have him in the back of their aid unit waiting to transport him by helicopter. They could have made their job much easier if they'd have just brought dad in and let this young little boy have exposure to his daddy. We use this to show medics and good caregivers who've got a good, sincere heart, sincerely good heart, but wrong. And we use that illustration. And if we could bring dad into that and just talk to dad as we place people at the scene, you wouldn't have an example like this. Ooh, the guy comes in in the red and white shirt, that's dad. He's not a happy camper because he don't know where the sun is going. The sun's scared of this helicopter, and they're not sure, and he's not happy. You see, fleshing out need in our area or in our area of involvement is identifying what is the need of that family. What's dad's need? What would be your need? When I go on the scene often as a chaplain entering a home, the first thing that I do is not tell them I'm a chaplain. Because a chaplain can be a barrier, just like sometimes the name of a church can be a barrier to effective ministry. If you're not comfortable, if I go in as a chaplain, and if I'm not a Baptist chaplain, then and they're something else or something, they're not comfortable. I, they put me in a box. Or they may put me in a box and assume that I'm there to do last rites. But the best entree that we can make on most events, no matter how heavy it may be, is walk there and say, I'm Ken Gatiss. I care for you, friend. I'm going to care for you amidst all these strangers as I would my own family. You see, then there are no great expectations. But so many times our religion, the things that we think are religious in what we do, become the very barrier to effectively bringing someone and pointing someone and ministering in the name of Christ. 
in that particular case, some lessons we could learn if we could spend more time with it. Sometimes our ministry deals just with a family who's not knowing anybody involved, but sometimes just those events like this public park where something tragically goes wrong and all of a sudden someone is there and they're there at that park and they see this happen and the trauma that's affected by them to have someone to talk to, to have someone in their life that can care for them and gently lead them through this heavy time is what it's all about. A number of times up in our area, quite often we have divers that get in trouble. And on one particular day we had a young man that drowned. His young wife and baby or a young child were on the beach. And while we were searching for his remains to bring his body up, to take it home, news people gathered. And we found that uh, this was the heaviest thing for this mother and this child to have all these news cameras around to also have a gawking public. Somehow events like this attract a strange crowd. But they're all there on the beach. The only place of privacy we had for that woman was the backseat of a police car until we decided that can't happen. So we took the Ministry of Chaplaincy one step further and said if we had a better vehicle that we could provide privacy for, let's try to do it. And here's what a news team said about it medical response has changed significantly over the past few years. In many cities, ambulances have given way to paramedic units uniquely equipped to handle almost any situation. Now some thought is being given to friends or relatives of victims who may be in need of some special care as well. Bill Benson has a report. When an emergency occurs, expert medical help in most cases is only minutes away. Paramedic units are virtually mini-hospitals on wheels where patients can be treated while they are transported. This is often a difficult time for friends or relatives of the victim who are at the scene. There is anxiety, questions, and only strangers to talk to. Having experienced these situations many times, the Edmonds-based International Chaplain's Ministry has come up with an aid unit of its own called Support 7. Once an aging medic unit with the Edmonds Fire Department, the vehicle is now a quiet place where friends or relatives at the scene of an emergency can get away to talk with crisis experts or simply be alone to use a telephone. Today in our area, there are men and women who are not pastors but are trained specifically to take that unit, search and rescues, drownings, SWAT-type events where hostages are taken, to quietly minister to those families at the heaviest times of their lives. Basically, what I'm doing is simply saying, somewhere in your life, if it's not figured out, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Be, around, be aware that God might just take the thing that you're most uncomfortable with today and give you a real measure of peace. Or that thing you're experiencing today that you find no relevance in at all will all of a sudden become the key to your ministry, the key to the place God calls you. As a news reporter, I used to think that's it, telling the story, going to the scene, putting a microphone in someone's face. Today, much deeper, much more significant. How we care for families, suddenly, all of a sudden, things happen. This family, this young mother and her daughter, out here in Orange County, all of a sudden woke up that morning, went to the store, didn't think that anything would happen on that particular day. But all of a sudden, we're called to that event and called to that scene. And our medic crews are trying to get that woman taken from the car. This is life. This is the kind of a life that you see when you just hear a siren going by. And you see a medic unit going someplace. Some of you may have even been involved in something like this. In this particular incident, we credit the young firefighter for his care and the way that he talks to this young mother in the car. Okay, honey, give me your arm, please. Listen to it. I know it hurts, ma'am. Give me your arm, hon. I'm sorry, dear. There's a tenderness about his care and the ministry about what he's doing that we can help fire and emergency service people understand. Taking good care of you, hon. He's doing the best he can. Okay, can we keep pressure on As opposed to that other firefighter who was insensitive to that young boy who wanted his mother. The tragedy about this particular event, as happens in so many, as much as care we can give, as well as we can care for a family, this young woman died a short while afterwards.
And that brings us to the next place. Most of the ministry of the chaplain in emergency service is to go to someone's house, go someplace, and tell someone that they have died. It's tough. It's tough for the families. It's tough. There's no easy way to do it. But we have found that one of the ministries is to even the emergency service people. This state trooper up in Oregon knows that the woman, the wife of this man uh, to your left, has just been killed in a car accident. He asks him, has she died? He doesn't know how to handle that. He doesn't want to tell her that. So he dances, and the care is not given as well as could uh, be done, had there been a chaplain there. But he does know. I, I really think that uh, if, if you got any friends or anybody that you can call to drive And he's doing uh, his best. Or, you know, I, I can do and he does have a heart. I gotta go with my daughter. And he's sincere. Okay, right. You sure? Yeah. There's anything that we can do with driving. But there's a way or... that this can be done and cared for. But we've tried to find a way. And after he leaves the scene here and they meet up over at the hospital afterwards, he finally is able to say to her that she died. But even in his attempt to console, listen to the way he said it. He uses the term injured fatally. Can someone be injured fatally? But listen to his term at the hospital. What was your first name? Bud. Well, your wife was uh, was injured fatally in that accident. She was. That's the first time in this whole hour, a time that ensued since the accident, this young father and husband heard of that. That trooper was sincere, but there are ways that still we can get in and help him, help that family, and not just turn him loose at the hospital, but care for him more effectively. Around the world, there are events happening hourly, almost every moment. We've had the privilege of being a part of a lot of agencies this past April in the country of South Africa, where the tragedies are different, where the events are different, where things happen differently. But young boys still have mothers, and events that happen in gangs and tribal warfare and killings and stonings there's still mothers and there's still dads to be loved and cared for. And in this particular event, this young boy, in the midst of news cameras, in the midst of a public that just seemed to want it all and thrive on it, like they're in Disneyland, this young boy is killed. But yet our question comes back, in ministry, if we're going to flesh out the scripture and the gospel, how can we best care for this family? And are we prepared to do it? And that's the main thing. And that's what we've tried to do over these years, is to find ways to take gifted men and women, to place them at the heart of these kinds of things, to help them care more effectively, and to flesh out this book we call the Bible, and the message that God has given to us. On Monday... We'll take some of this if you're here, if you all come back again. <laughs> I guess chapel is not mandatory, is it? No, required. If you come back, we'll try to flesh this out, how it affects you and has a part of you. But I want to leave us on a note that isn't all, all heavy things. Things happen uh, in life uh, that are to the firefighter and to those of us that are joyful occasions. And they are miracles, miracle called birth. There are times occasionally we're not going to the scene to end a life, but to see a new one begin and see the graciousness and the principles behind uh, just a new life entering this. I asked the assignment to do it. Do you remember what it was? You're going to write something out. You're going to list it. 
I'd like you to bring it with you, if you would. No one's going to see it. But I'd like you on Monday to bring out that list of what you, what you do in a typical day. Would you do that? I realize it's, it's a snore sometimes to do it, and you've got other things on homecoming weekend to do. And by the way, welcome, parents. That's why we're here this weekend, and we're going to enjoy homecoming with you. But one last thing. Think on this thing, would you? Right now, you sit here, and you know you have some kind of a reputation. You know that if you were never going to come back again, that someone would, somewhere would remember you for a certain thing. What do you think that would be? If someone would stand over your casket, I don't mean to be inappropriate here, but if someone were there and they would say, besides you like people and you had a nice smile and you were good with dogs and cats and things like that, those niceties that are said at times like that, what, what do you think they'd say about you? Let me flip the question around to think about over the weekend. When your life is over, for what would you want to be remembered? Now, I say that carefully, distinguishing between the other. Because people have reputations. Entertainers who die will be remembered. Sports figures who die will be remembered. Pastors who die. You know, I appreciate I don't know if uh, Coach is still here. Coach Oates, are you still back there? No, they had a game or something, I think. I may refer to this on Monday. But I like, I, I don't know him that well. But we met, uh, had some time together last time I was down here. And I know he's passionate about ball. And he wants to win every game. And I know the passion for basketball. I know these guys. But you know, he said, when all is done, that's not what I'm going to be measured for, how many games I win. It's going to be the influence for Christ that I have on these young men that are in my charge. I care. When it's all said and done, for what would you want to be remembered? Think about that over the weekend, would you? Now I'm going to leave you uh, in just a moment, in three and a half minutes. But I want to bring us up uh, so that you don't go to lunch uh, thinking about some of these heavy things, just those two things I ask you to do. And if I'm back on Monday, if, um, if Kelly, uh, are we okay for Monday? <laughs> back on Monday, we'll try to flesh some of this out. In the meantime, though... And we will end on this note, and um, uh, I want you to think that, that crisis and tragedy and things that happen in life are not always necessarily bad, and they may have happened to you in a very distinct and, uh, and different way. We'll kind of leave it on this note, and we'll say we'll see you on Monday. And my 